the flag could talk, it could write a book. This man's name is really great. I'm looking in the window at Tiffany's. Hello and welcome to the last episode of In Her Lens, In Conversation, Archives and Documentary. My name is Nadine and I am the producer and host of this podcast. This series is a collaboration with the Brooklyn Public Library and New York History Day 2022. This podcast series is an expansion to a short video that I created for the New York History Day contest. You can watch it on YouTube and I've linked it in the episode notes. In these five podcast episodes, we get to know five documentary filmmakers and their perspectives on working with archival footage. We close out this special with the one and only Jason Pollard. Jason Pollard is a film editor and producer of documentaries, features, shorts, commercials, and music videos. You might have seen his work in several acclaimed documentary films, including Sing Your Song, which premiered at Sundance in 2011, the Netflix documentary Get Me Roger Stone, and the TV miniseries Who Killed Malcolm X. In this episode, Jason opens up about his unique story in the film industry, how he chooses stories to work on, and he explains more about the technical side of working with archives, how they're collected on big-scale projects, where they go to find them, and how to work with and properly utilize still images, for example, versus moving images. Jason has so much knowledge to share, so let's just hop straight in. Here is Jason Pollard on Archives and Documentary. If you could introduce yourself to us, tell us a little bit about um, where you're from, how you grew up, and um, how you got in contact with film, filmmaking, and editing. Uh, my name is Jason Pollard. I am a film editor, primarily of documentaries, um, born and raised in Mount Vernon, New York. It's the, Mount Vernon is a suburb of Westchester County of New York. That's where uh, I was raised for most of my life. Um, you know, the way I got into film and filmmaking was, you know, my dad, Sam Pollard, has been a producer, editor for the past 50 years, you know. So from, you know, from a young child, you know, there are pictures of me as a five and six year old in my dad's editing room. You know, back then, that was before, you know, cutting on computers. That was before Avid, before Premiere, to editing applications. So, you know, you see me in the editing room, there's these huge film bins, and I'm around a little boy around these big film bins. Wow. And then my mom was like a, you know, my mom's a registered nurse, but she's also, an avid film fan, so I was always around it. And initially, I thought I wanted to get into computer science, which probably would have been a smarter thing for me to do. But <laughs> you know, after after freshman year, right, I did computer science, and you know, I didn't like it so much. I passed the class, the intro class, but it was really tough for me to pass it. So I decided, you know, my my roommate at the time was really into film as well. So he kind of convinced me, I, you know, I got into it. So that's how I got into it. So then once I got into film, I reached out to my dad. I was lucky enough to reach out to my dad and say, hey, and said, hey, I want to get into editing mm-hmm. just like you. What are the steps? And, you know, he's able to connect me with certain people. And I just worked my way up. You know, I started as an assistant. I did that for a couple of years. And I was lucky enough to just rise um, up the ladder pretty quickly because of with my dad's help. Look, it's a privilege that I was able to tap into. And, um, you know, that put me into editing chair a little bit earlier than most people. But, you know, I just, you know, I just worked hard and I'm just continuing to just do that. So it's been primarily documentary editing. There's been some 
narrative work, not much, some narrative producing, not much, but some, you know, it's been primarily documentary editing for the past oof, 15, 20 years. So that's what I'm doing right now. That's who I am. What, um, what excites you particularly about documentary work? What excites me about documentary work is the, it's, it's two things. The first thing is to, it introduces me to new characters and to new, to new worlds, new people, right? To new real people. It just, it opens your mind to just, you know, different lifestyles, different cultures, different, just, you know, different eating habits, different everything, right? Different, different, different life situations. And that just opens up your mind to just realize, really empathize with just humanity as a whole. Right. Because you see all these different people having their own different sort of issues. And in a way, the interesting thing about documentaries are that you find out that most humans are going through the same issues fundamentally. Fundamentally, we all are. But there are, you know, there's all these different complications. And like I said, again, depending on where you live and your social status, you know, whether you're rich or poor, or black or white or whatever other race or, you know, culture you identify with. And the second thing is that just the sense of learning. Right. With documentaries, you're always learning some new information. Right. So for mostly I work on music documentaries, and even the music documentaries, for the most part, I'm learning about different types of music. Right. Where they came from, the history, the origin, you know, for the historical docs I've worked on, even though we all basically we all have had a basic history of the world. We don't really get into the nitty gritty, into the details of that history. What documentary allows me to do. Is to really get into that because if I'm doing a historical doc, if I'm doing a doc, say about the history of the Netherlands or the history of Amsterdam, then I have to really get into it, right? right. I do a Wikipedia search, but then go from Wikipedia to a different article to a different article to a different article, you know, to the pictures, to this, to that, as a constant repetition. And, you know, you become a sort of not a, not a, an expert expert, but a sort of mini expert on a lot of different topics, right? And a lot of, there's a lot of varied topics. That's what I enjoy about this process. It's just it's just this constant learning, right? And it just keeps you fresh. Right. That's, those are the two things I really love about documentary filming. Yeah, it's totally that curiosity for the world that, that you get to put into your work, which is really exciting. Um, well, share a little bit about one of your favorite projects that you've worked on and why it w is one of your favorite projects. One of my favorite projects to work on early on was the film about uh, the singer, activist, you know, humanitarian Harry Belafonte. And it was so interesting, I love it so much, is because initially I thought of Harry Belafonte, if, if people aren't familiar with him, as the guy who sang the Banana Boat song. That song is Daylight Coming, We Want to Come Home. If you remember Beetlejuice, and that's an older film, he, did, he has a song in Beetlejuice too. Yeah. That's all I really knew of him. But then as I got into the story, I found out what an activist he was. He worked with King, he worked with Nelson Mandela, he worked in Israel, he worked everywhere. He had this really global reach. And it was really an unknown story. And just the opportunity to explore all these different facets of this one guy who came from, came from, you know, was born in Harlem, but then, you know, he went to Jamaica and back to Harlem. But, you know, he started out as a poor guy, but the way he, he worked himself up into this international superstar but still maintained his basic politics about of, of helping out, you know, his fellow man. It's helping out people to to addressing injustice, not only in the United States, but addressing injustice throughout the world. Really inspired me. And the great thing about working on that film was that you know Harry was around. I mean, it was a good thing and a bad thing. Mm. It was mostly a good thing. It was a good thing because he would visit the edit room. And you know, sometimes you don't want your subject visiting the edit room because they influence what you're doing. And he definitely did that. But 
it's great because you have this living legend sitting beside you and just dropping you know information and dropping jewels and giving you all wow. this this fascinating insight so that's that's tops one of the best best experiences i've had i mean and he also had this really this wealth of archive because he was smart enough to know that you know as most people are you know they they just know that what they're doing needs to be documented it needs to be pre preserved so he, he directed and produced and starred in all these TV shows and movies. He kept all this film and he took home movies. And that's the kind of stuff you love, right? That's the kind of documentary editor's dream, right? To have a wealth of footage that just somebody that's just done to, to kind of capture themselves. And, you know, um, you mentioned it now, archives. What function do archives have in documentaries from your perspective as a documentary maker? And how do you like to use them? Well, the function for me for archive hopefully is to really shed light shed a new light on pat on the past right whether it's the person's personal past or it's a historical past i mean it can also it can also shed light on the present day right to show what's happening in the present day but ideally it's to shed a new light on the past and what does that mean well that means that uh, to me archive really good archive is stuff that you, you haven't seen before or you're putting or you're trying to put that archive in a new light so you've seen it before and maybe I'm going to try to use it in a different way to, to illustrate or to illuminate, you know, some kind of opinion that I that I have about about history. Right. right? You know, some kind of, you know, or or what, what's the division, what's the vision the director has about history? So that's what archive serves. It, it, it gives you this window into not only into the past, but what, but specifically what about the past? So as an example, I did a piece about, um, called Burn Motherfucker Burn. That was about the history of the different, you know, uprisings that the LA community had against the police, against police brutality. And what the history showed us was that, you know, it wasn't like just the 92 riots happened. This was in fact a timeline and the result of, of years and years of just police misconduct. Mm -hmm. You know, police abuse, you know, a, a general feeling of hopelessness in the community that started way back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And that's what the art, you know, that's what archival does. It shows you, it gives you a window into, well, this is what happened in the past, right? And how does that directly affect what's happening now? That's, that's what I love about archival. All to me, any archival, it always shows you, it always is a clue to that what is happening now. Because right. another thing, great thing about, I always love about archival is that it shows that, that there truly is nothing new under the sun. Mm. Like the tools are new. Like this, this is new. Zoom is new. Twitter is new. Instagram is new. The way we communicate is new. The technology is obviously better. But the general human behaviors, the general human personality, general human characteristics, none of that ever changes. You can just you can go back, go back to the 30s, the 40s, the 20s, the 10s. It's the same issues time and time again. The same throughout, same issues, the same worries. How do we do this? This taxes, government, race, this, that. It's and it's always a cycle. And to me, it's very instructive. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to me, it's instructive. Hopefully, we can break that cycle. But you know, <laughs> something's not too hopeful about that. But it's mm. it's super instructive to me. It always is. Yeah, yeah. It really is that mirroring of what we're experiencing. That it has been just time and time again. Yeah. Exactly. Putting it in context, almost whatever the subject is of the film. Um. Where do you go as an editor to find archival research and where do you collect it? Because you've talked a little bit about getting it directly from the subject. What other resources do you find very useful? 
Well, usually what happens is I'll, I'll, we'll get a pretty good archival producer or researcher to kind of just do that work for, for us. So that person is usually come, is hired before I am and just does, you know, a, a, a big search. So usually, you know, the places you look for archive, but if it's not a personal, person's personal archive, it's the, it's the major network. So you look at NBC. I mean, it depends on the subject. It's NBC News, Fox, ABC, CBS, four networks. Right. You can also look at the national archives. National archives here in the States is a huge, you know, free archival source. And it's usually good for older stuff. Like, you know, like if you've seen anything about the, the 1963 Marshall in Washington, there's usually really nice looking film footage that's from the national archives at okay. most nine times out of ten. Right. There's also, you know, there's always great stuff that they've done. You know, if they really took great, you know, did great newsreels about different historical, you know, uh, events. Um, but speaking about that is also like movie tone newsreels, right? That's good archival source. There's stuff from, you know, I don't like to, I don't like to use them, but there's stuff like Getty images, mm-hmm. you know, there's there other places like that. There's, uh, Streamline and there's a lot of places are actually closing as Getty is actually acquiring a lot of stuff, but those are the main places. I'm probably forgetting a lot, but those are the main places. And when you're editing as an editor, you have video, you have stills. Do you like animating your stills? How do you work with still footage uh, that, is, that isn't moving in a documentary? Stills are always tough because, I, you know, I think, you know, Ken Burns laid out the template on how to treat stills, which is, you know, move super slow zoom and super slow zoom out. And the, the, the trick for me is always, okay, if I, have, if I have a lot of stills, how the hell am I going to make this look somewhat fresh? Right. Yeah, you try to animate it in a different way. So, you know, I learned from one editor to really zoom in on a specific part of a still. Is it a person's eyes? Is it they're talking to another? Or you try to tell a story through through stills. So, yes, I'm always trying to animate the stills, but I'm trying to animate them in a way that is more than just a zoom in and zoom out. Is it a pan? Is it this? Is it, you know, one person looking at another? Is it like, you know, wide and a quick zoom in, right? You know, so the, is it as close and a quick zoom out? You know, stuff like that. Is it, you know, I'm looking, working on a project now where there's a lot of contact sheets, which I love because the contact sheets give you a different pose, but it's a different, you know, it's a different, it's, a, it's in the same setting, but a different like pose. So that's good to kind of just go in a rapid format from one to the next to the next to the next to the next. Right, right. You know, you know, so there's a really great film that I love about, um, about the trumpeter who I can't remember right now called Let's Get Lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they do the still movement, I mean, it's old as on film, but the way they do the still movement and they kind of zoom in on the contact sheet, the contact sheet spins around and does stuff like that. That's great. There's also great still stuff in Dogtown and the Z Boys. Really stuff, you know, again, but they have like contact sheets and photography. It's like, that's the kind of stuff I enjoy and kind of stuff I try to do with my stills. Um, when you're deciding what goes into the film and what doesn't, what do you kind of define as research material and what is really material that you're like, okay, that actually needs to be on screen and in the film? It's about for archive? Yeah. It's a good question. So what's research and what could be actually in the film? I mean, for me, it's it's it, it has to it has to be vital to the story it has to progress the story and it has to be hopefully unique to the story okay. so that's that those are the two those are the three things so if it's just research then usually it, it's not it's not super unique it's something that i know people have seen before mm-hmm. you know if it's something 
if it's something you know stuff that goes in is, is the stuff that's going to hit it's going to hit home right and i'm speaking of cliches now but it's the stuff that's really going to resonate and matter to the film like and it, it's hard to say what resonates until you watch the stuff but that's you know you you, you kind of know it when you see it you kind of want to make sure you always use a, use an archive that that hits and resonates you know if you have to use the same old same old stuff okay that's okay if you have to but if, if not you know, you really want stuff that just speaks specifically to what you're doing, right? And has a has a real, you know, a powerful meaning within it. Right. It really is kind of like gut feeling about something. Yeah, it's definitely gut feeling. It's gut feeling, but you know, and off, but also if it's never before seen stuff, you know, you gotta explain it. You know, I say, oh, okay, I've never seen this before. I've never seen that before. You know, that's usually with with home movies with celebrities. That's wow. the kind of thing you know you've never seen before. And you go, okay, that's going in. What is one aspect to the process of how you edit and how you look at film that is unique to who you are? It's a tough question. Um, Good question. <laughs> I'm not sure what's so unique. I mean, it's just again, that's a hard one to answer. It's 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 just you know you just you said gut feeling before. It's that gut feeling you have where you know. It just it's it's just something about an image that speaks to me, right? I mean that's the whole thing about editing and filmmaking, it's, it's super subjective to what speaks to me, doesn't speak to the next person. But you know, it's just it's, it's really hard to say. You know, it's it's just something about a particular image that'll hit me in a certain way. And I think I'll just say that goes there, right? Or that goes there, or that goes there. I can't say what's unique about I'll be honest. It's, I don't know what's unique about it. It's, it's just, just the way that you think. It's just the way, yeah. It's just the way. It's just the way I think. It's just the way I see stuff. I can't. I, I can't look at my. I can. That's not true. I can look at my stuff. What's unique to me is 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 a sentimental feeling. That's me. I'm mm -hmm. super sentimental about my stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. A yeah. little bit too much at times. <laughs> but I'm really sentimental about. Meaning, you can tell. You can tell something I've cut because it has. It has, a, it has a, it's. It's usually. It's a slower pace. If you see a slower pace thing. That's super emotional, almost on the on the point of being syrupy and melodramatic, and that's that's me, right? Yeah. That's my so that's my that's my feeling. It's, I usually have a melancholy feeling about life, right? I'm better, you know, not sure where we're gonna go, not sure about the future. That's what you see sometimes in my edit. A last question: If you had a piece of advice for your younger professional self, what would you say to him? Good question, younger professional self. I would say. Hmm, I, my advice to my younger professional self would be to move to LA earlier. Oh, just okay. yeah. Get out to LA to explore, at least explore. I, I, you know, once I got into just docs and editing in New York, I kind of just stayed here. And I should have given myself more of a time to explore what LA would, would have been like. And there's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite take it. That's what I would say. Go out to LA to explore. You know, even if you end up coming back here to New York, at least you got out there for a couple of months <clears throat> and took a look at the landscape. No, but that's what I was saying. Thank you so much for hopping onto this call. Of course, no problem. Thank you so much, Jason, for being a part of this series. You can find Jason on social media. I've linked his handles in the episode notes. And make sure to check out the countless projects that he shaped and made. Now, this week has flown by, and this is the end of the In Her Lens special In Conversation Archives and Documentary. Thank you so much for tuning in and being a part of this week. 
want to thank Bing Lu, Michelle Memran, Darisha Kai, Beatrice Brown, and Jason Pollard for making the time and sitting down and sharing their incredible perspectives. I do want to ask you to leave a quick rating and review. It takes two seconds and it really helps the podcast grow and meet new people on the charts. I want to thank Shirley Brown-Alini and Talia Den one more time for making this project possible. And a special shout out to the Brooklyn Public Library, Charles Rudoy, and Sonia Achshorn. I want to thank Madeline Baker for the awesome visuals that match this project. Now don't go too far. I'll be back with our third and final special of 2022, not too long from now. So make sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Podcast or myself at Nadine Rumor to not miss the announcement. I appreciate you so deeply. I'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye. In Her Lens is produced and edited by yours truly, Nadine Rumer. The visuals for this special were created by the formidable Madeline Baker. Our house style is by Lara Römer, and the theme music is by Daniela Wiegner. 